Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, Lord, thank you that we can gather here this, together this morning. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your word. And thank you for that hope that burns within our hearts. Father, pray that you grow it this morning and help it to burn through what we read in Jesus' name. Amen. Was Winston Churchill right? Churchill's been in news again uh, the last couple of weeks after one of his speeches was quoted by the Ukrainian president, uh, Vladimir Zelensky. This is what Churchill said uh, in his speech. I'm not going to do the Churchill impression, don't worry. (laughs) You asked, what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war by sea, land and air with all our might and with all our strength that God can give us. This is our policy. Uh, Sorry, that is our policy. You asked, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. I want to ask this morning, is Churchill right? Is our aim victory at all costs? Is it to use all means by fair or foul to survive? I suppose it's a bit of an academic question for us really here this morning, isn't it? Uh, Our life and blood are on the line, as they were in World War II, as it is in Ukraine at the moment. But for the people in Israel in our passage, this was a real question. They were being oppressed. They were being beaten. They were being enslaved. How far should they go to escape? What could they legitimately do? And it's a question that Moses has to address too. He has a privileged position. He was an Israelite, but an Israelite brought up in Pharaoh's palace, schooled in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And at that point, that was the most advanced civilization in the world. How would he use his position to help God's people? Would he use his position to help God's people? With great power comes great responsibility. That's not Churchill, it's Spider-Man. But it's still true. With great power comes great responsibility, but power also corrupts. How will Moses exercise his power? Will he use it rightly or will he not? And it's a question for us too as we start to look at this. I mean, God has given us a mission, hasn't he? To go out into all the world to preach the gospel. How will we go about it? Victory at all costs? No matter the compromise, no matter the question of morality or methods? Well, let's see how Moses does in such a situation. First point, Moses attempts a low-key Liberation. Let me read to you verses 11 to 15 again. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to the people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, in most retellings of this story, Moses is portrayed as a sort of hophead murderer who loses his temper. And I've spoken about that incident in the past. I've sort of used Moses as an example of someone who goes out and and murders someone. The story goes then that Moses lashes out in a fit of rage. He goes too far and in the heat of the moment ends up killing an Egyptian who's beating his fellow Israelites. 
But the problem is that when you look closely, that's not how the passage portrays what's happening. And it's certainly not how the New Testament sees this incident. For one, the passage seems to show Moses considering his actions. Do you notice that in verse 12? He looks this way and that. It seems to imply he knows what he's going to do. There's a sort of slight premeditation to it and what's going on. In Acts 7, Stephen describes the incident like this. It's on the back of your notice sheet, Acts 7, verses 23 to 25. When he was 40 years old, that's Moses, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptians. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Now this here in Acts is inspired scripture. What it tells us about Moses' motives is true. And that means that Moses here was actually trying to liberate his people. He was attempting to be their rescuer. And from what we read there in Acts, he really thought the people would accept him as God's liberator, his, their rescuer, their redeemer. That puts a slightly different slant on what we read, doesn't it? The passage in Acts makes it sound like Moses was in the right to do what he did, and that it was the people who were in the wrong for rejecting him. That's very different, isn't it, from how the story is told. But we need to make a decision, because otherwise the implications for us are very different, aren't they, depending on where we go. But it's hard to come uh, come down on one side or the other, isn't it? Do we really want to commend Moses' murder of the Egyptian? That results in a 40-year exile out in the wilderness, reminiscent of the Israelites that will follow. But then again, do we really want to commend the Israelites who reject Moses and treat him like a threat? I think the reason it's so tricky is that both sides have it a bit right and a bit wrong. Moses wants to rescue the people. Great! But also, he does it in a stupid way. Not so great. The people reject Moses' methods. Great. But they also reject Moses himself when God has raised him up to be their rescuer. Not so great. Neither party comes off glowingly from this. Even when both parties try to do good, evil lurks there at the door. Sin taints both parties' efforts to do what's right, as so often sin does. Moses, though, does not seem to do God's work in God's way. That's the problem. Instead, he comes up with his own plan. He seems to expect to sort of become a sort of folk hero, a sort of stealthy superhero lurking in the shadows, taking down the abusers and the slave masters. A sort of backstreet Batman. You know what I mean? So being Batman, but not letting anyone know. Or a Hebrew Robin Hood, a sort of vigilante going around. Moses by day, crusader by night, protecting the streets of Goshen cities. <laughs> it took me all week to come up with that. <laughs> maybe though, maybe he thought his example would spread. Maybe he thought, if I sort of start the ball rolling, things will get moving and it will move into some sort of revolution or rebellion. Who knows? But whatever it was, this was not the kind of rescue that God had in mind. Not even close. It was not some low-key liberation, a sort of behind-the-scenes breakout. It was not some vigilante uprising either. (coughs) We'll see that when God rescues the Israelites, it's going to go down as one of the most spectacular events in human history. One of the most significant things that has ever happened. 
And it's going to happen, not with the Israelites pummeling the Egyptians, but by plundering them. Actually, by the end of it, they're going to take away their stuff. And it's going to be God that will do that, not them. They're going to be rescued. They're not to sort of stand up and rescue themselves. So Moses' plan is not right. There's things that are just wrong with it. In a way, it's too violent and worldly. In another way, it's too timid. He's not sort of thinking big enough. John Calvin about this passage writes, this we perceive that he was not altogether so bold as he should have been, and that he had to strive against his timidity. It's really not the normal way to read this passage, is it? But God's plan was much bigger, much more brash than what Moses had in mind. But anyway, Moses' plan, whatever it was, doesn't work, it fails. If his plan was an uprising, well, the people don't get behind it. If his plan was to be a secret vigilante, well, the secret is out. Loose lips, uh, loose lips, loose lips sink ships. Do a better rhyme with that. Loose lips sink ships, but here they create exiles. Moses is going to be forced to flee the country as Pharaoh himself finds out what's going on. Moses wants to keep this on the quiet, doesn't he? That's why he buries the Egyptian. But even that is not enough to keep it a secret. But it's not so much that he fears Pharaoh, because the New Testament makes that clear. He is afraid, but it's more likely of what becomes of his plan. What is he to do now? He's been rejected by his people, and his secret is out. Whatever Moses' plan was, and for whatever reason, it ends in rejection of Moses. And that's an incredibly hard place to be, isn't it? Moses thought that he knew what his role in life was. But now he's been consigned to the wilderness, rejected by his own people. But in doing so, he serves as a pattern. A pattern of those who seek to serve God and are so often despised and rejected. Think of Christ. He came to his own, and his own received him not. That's in John 1. Or in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That was Jesus. But this is Moses. But it's Moses walking the way of the cross. As Hebrews will go on to say in Hebrews 11, 26, he considered the reproach of Christ, that's Moses, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Maybe he's not all the way there yet. But this is the beginning of that. These are his first sort of faltering steps towards that. But Moses now is out in the wilderness. He stays out in the wilderness. And you can also imagine him fed up, sat by that well in the middle of nowhere, pondering what he's to do now. But God is not absent in the wilderness. He will work on Moses, prepare him, mould him. This was not a failure of God's plan, even if it was a failure of Moses' plan. In fact, God had told Abraham exactly how long his descendants would live in Egypt, 430 years. If Moses' plan had worked, they would have escaped 40 years early. So actually, this was all part of God's plan. It was all sort of factored in. So what's going on? Why has this happened? Well, God has broken Moses. God has taken away his position. He's taken away his plan. He's taken away his purpose. Moses is broken sat out there in the middle of the desert, an unwanted, wanted man, broken. And so often God has to break us and wean us off our own strength before he uses us. 
God does not work well when we're trying to do it all our own way and on our own terms and in our own strength. It's like with Gideon. You remember him in the Bible? Can't bring you victory, Gideon. Why not? Your army is too strong. That's the problem. God does not in general use heroes. He uses zeros. God in general tends to use the weak rather than the strong. So if you don't feel like a hero this morning, that's probably a good sign, actually. Because God doesn't want Batman. He wants broken men and women. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Moses needs to be broken first. But the problem is at this point, neither Moses or the Israelites are quite broken enough, as we'll see in our next two points. So first of all, what happens to Moses? Moses goes off and rescues someone else. Have a look at verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs uh, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Uel, he said, How is it that you've come home so early today? They said an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may come and eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Feeling rejected by the people, Moses winds up uh, by a well in Midian. Now, no one knows the exact location of Midian. They uh, moved around a bit. It's somewhere to the south uh, of Israel and to the east uh, of Egypt, somewhere off uh, in the desert. And the Midianites were descendants of Abraham. It's often overlooked, but after uh, Sarah, he had other wives and other children. And the Midianites were a product of one of those marriages. And the priests of Midian's daughters appear at the well. There are seven of them. Now, sometimes that number is significant in the Bible. Here it probably just means he had seven daughters, uh, quite a few. Makes me think of sort of pride and prejudice, you know, what that household must have been like, you know, Mr. Mr. Bennett. But um, likely here, though, she's got a lot of, of daughters. The daughters, though, are hassled by some shepherds who push them out of the way and won't let them water their flocks, while enter Moses, the sandaled crusader. He gets his chance to be a superhero again. He gets rid of the shepherds and he saves them. That's the word that it uses. He rescues them. Israel has rejected him as rescuer, but he just can't seem to help himself. He goes and rescues someone else. More than that, he waters their flocks for them. He feeds the sheep. What a guy. See, it's not that Moses was bad at rescuing people. It's just not the way that God had planned to use him. But there's more to the story. Remember, Exodus is a sequel. The very first word of the, uh, in Exodus is and. Sort of assumes you've read the book uh, before. They go together. And in Genesis, the prequel, so to speak, there's a very similar story. In Genesis 29, Jacob goes to a foreign land and meets his bride-to-be, Rachel, at a well. He helps her by rolling away the stone and then he waters the sheep. The first time we meet Rebecca, Isaac's wife, is at a well in a foreign country. And sure enough, Moses here comes to a foreign land and he meets his bride-to-be at the well. As an aside, of course, Jesus follows this pattern as well. 
He goes to Samaria to a well to meet his bride-to-be and chat about marriage. Not a physical legal bride, don't get me wrong, but the woman has several husbands already. It's marriage that's the topic. And she does actually end up being the bride of Christ. That's she part of it as part of the church. Anyway, back to the story. The daughters go back to their father, a man with many names, Jethro, Ruel, Hobab. Let's just call him the priest of Midian. He's surprised that they're back so early. And they explain that a man came and helped them water the flock. That also means, by the way, that Moses managed to water the flock quicker than the seven daughters would have done between them themselves. Again, you know, what a hero. Somebody must want him now. Well, he is wanted. He gets invited to a meal. Uh, and before you know it, uh, the priest of Midian has given Zipporah in marriage to him. Like Joseph in Egypt, he's married, ended up marrying a priest's daughter. Well, at least this one's a descendant of Abraham. That's at least something slightly positive. What life was like for them, we're not told. What sort of priest he was, uh, we're not told. But we're probably supposed to see him, at, at the, the, the priest here, a bit like Melchizedek in Genesis, sort of priest of the most high God. We're not exactly sure what the Midianites believed, but as descendants of Abraham, there's hope that there was more than the average non-Israelite going on there, that they understood a bit more. And Moses stays with them for 40 years. And Moses and Zipporah have a son. In fact, they have two sons while Moses is in Midian. Only one of them is mentioned here. Now, I don't think that it's just Moses forgot he had two kids. <laughs> Sometimes I forget what year my kids are in school, things like that. But I generally remember I've got two of them. But the point he really wants to pick on is the name of the child that he's talking about. He has a son called Gershon. And the fact that it's pointed out to us means it's significant. Moses' name meant drawn out, because that's what God was going to do with his people. His son's name literally means driven out, actually, because that's what his people had had done to him. They'd driven him out into exile. It's the same word used in verse 17 when Moses drives away the shepherds. Gershom. But it's also a play on words. Moses tells us it's about being a sojourner in a foreign land. If you split that word Gershom into Ger and Shum, it means foreigner there. And it describes, if you think about it, it's both his uh, life back in Egypt, where he was a foreigner amongst the Egyptians, and then his life in the wilderness, where now he's a foreigner amongst these people. He's a foreigner wherever he goes, a sojourner. You notice that they see that, what do they call him? They think he's an Egyptian in verse 19. They don't even recognise him as an Israelite. He's probably dressed as an Egyptian. Wherever he goes, he's a foreigner, a stranger in a strange land. But that fits the description of Moses and others in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16 says this about these people. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been truly of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Moses, for this big chunk of his life, lives as a stranger and an exile. And he knew it. He knew it so much he named his son it. Moses never felt at home, wherever he was, in Egypt or Midian. And that's true for us too. 
In 1 Peter 2, Peter calls for us to live as sojourners and exiles, as foreigners in a strange land. There's a sense in which we're never quite at home here, are we? We're just passing through on our way to our real home in glory. Until then, like Moses, we feel like strangers in a strange land. It differs from time to time, depends who we're with. But that's there in the background, isn't it? And like Moses, we remain despised and rejected until we reach our true home. That's part of our existence here in this world until Jesus comes and takes us home. But if it's bad for Moses, well, it's just as bad in Egypt. Actually, they need to be broken too. So our last point. Meanwhile, God's people suffer. Let me read to you 23 to 25. During those days, many, uh, during those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. This little section here at the end is supposed to create a sort of sense of anticipation, a sort of uh, tension as to what is to follow. While Moses is away, things are getting worse back in Egypt. They've got a new pharaoh, which might mean that something good could happen. It could mean that actually things would change, that things would improve. But actually things have got no better. If anything, they're worse. God's people are now crying out to God. It seems in many ways that they weren't quite ready for a rescue before. You know, they rejected their rescuer. But now they really are broken. They're groaning, they're calling out to God for a rescue. They do need a hero now. The bat signal goes up, if you like. They're ready for a rescuer. And they're going to the right person, aren't they? They're going to the God of Abraham. They're going to the God of their fathers. So this is all very good, isn't it? And God hears, he sees, he knows, and he remembers. He hears their groaning. Perhaps they thought at that time it must have been so hard. Perhaps they felt like their prayers were bouncing off the ceiling. But we're told here that God heard them. We're told, aren't we, in the New Testament, that the Holy Spirit groans within us to God in this world. And God hears that groaning, that longing for redemption that we share with these people. He hears them. He sees them. Now, of course, God sees everything, doesn't he? But here it implies more that he directs his gaze towards them. The same phrase is used of God seeing the world uh, as wicked before that he sends the flood. Of seeing the Tower of Babel before he confuses the languages. Of seeing Sodom and Gomorrah before he destroyed them. And now God's gaze has been drawn to the suffering of the Israelites. Which means it's not going to go well for the Egyptians if you think about those other examples. So God sees, he's directed his gaze towards them. And God knows. Again, God knows everything, doesn't he? It sort of seems like a redundant thing to say. But what it means is that God was aware. It's in his mind. It's a step further than seeing, because you can sort of see without perceiving, can't you? Well, God perceives. He knows what's happening to his people. He's not blind to this. And lastly, God remembers God brings to mind the promises he made to Abraham, the promises he made to Isaac, the promises that he made to Jacob, to bless their offspring, to bring them to the land that he promised them. Now, they were already a great nation, as he promised. They were huge. That's part of the problem. 
But they were far from blessed in the situation they were in, and they were far from the promised land that God had promised to give to them. But what it's saying here is that God has not forgotten his promises. God is not indifferent to the suffering of his people. He hears, he sees, he knows, and he remembers. And that means he will act. He will come through for his people, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But it's worth remembering that these things are true for us too. It can be tempting, can't it, to think that God doesn't see our struggles and suffering. That he doesn't hear our prayers for deliverance. That he doesn't know what we're going through. But he does. He hears, he sees, he knows. He knows all too well because he experienced those struggles and suffering when he came into the world as Christ. He knows what it's like to struggle. He knows what it's like to suffer. He's not indifferent to the hard times that we have. And with us too, he also remembers. We too are recipients of promises of our own covenant. Confirmed for us, written for us, if you like, in Jesus' blood. One that promises an eternal home for strangers and exiles in glory with him. One that promises Christ will return to bring us into glory. One that promises to bind up the brokenhearted. One that promises God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, to live inside us and empower us to live for God. One that promises forgiveness when we fail to live for God. And God does not forget that. God keeps those things in mind. He's not forgotten those promises. And neither should we. Even if we're struggling, even if we're finding things hard. We need to bring to mind the wonderful promises that God has made to us. Because God has not forgotten them. And he's not forgotten us. So the battle then is not to win victory at all costs. But to remember Christ's victory that cost him everything. That purchased those promises for us. That means that we don't have to be Churchill or Robin Hood or Batman. And the Moses we're going to meet next time is anything but those things. He's waiting. And we're to wait to wait for that victory from God. And in the meanwhile, God sees, he hears, he knows and he remembers. And he will act for his people. He has acted for his people in Christ. So let's pray that God would help us to remember that. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you that you use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Father, forgive us when we've gone and done things in our own strength. Father, when we thought that we could do things without you. Father, instead, help us to wait for you. Father, help us to call out to you for rescue. And Father, thank you that in the midst of that, you hear, you see, you know, and you remember. And Father, help us to remember that. Even when things are really hard, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.